Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosen. And welcome to the final podcast in our series that is looking at the New Zealand general election. Voting has opened, and I think what's that old expression they say, vote early and often. And to conclude the series in just a moment, we'll be speaking with Nikki Wagner, who is New Zealand's current Minister for Disability Issues. And I do want to thank Nikki because when she first called in, it was on a cell phone in pretty dodgy coverage area, and she kindly dipped back to the office so we could get a good quality recording of the interview. So I'm certainly grateful for that. Just a reminder, that it is a busy old week in Blindside Land this week because we have a second podcast coming out in less than 48 hours from the time of publication of this one. And we're switching our focus from politics to technology, which I'm sure will be to the relief of a lot of people because Apple has their big event coming up on Tuesday, US time. That is at 10 a.m. Pacific time, 1 p.m. in the East time zone of the United States bright and early at 5am in New Zealand on a Wednesday morning, but it's even worse for my mate David Woodbridge, who is going to be joining us for this podcast because he has to get up at 3am in Australia for the Apple keynote. Now, this is going to be revealing what we now understand to be three devices known as the iPhone 8, the iPhone 8 Plus, and the iPhone X. It could possibly be a Roman numeral X, in which case it will be the iPhone 10. that's what they'll call it, and that may be the case because it's the 10th anniversary edition of the iPhone. This is the one with no home button, with no touch ID, it seems, with a, a new technology called Face ID, a much bigger screen and all sorts of fun things like that. We will have no more speculation. We will have the facts as of the Apple event. It's going to be taking place at Apple Park. This is Apple's amazing new campus, and they built a theater there. It's called the Steve Jobs Theater. When you go to the theater, I understand it has rotating elevators. That's pretty geeky and cool, isn't it? And they have these conference rooms that you can sort of build as required with all these movable partitions, and it's all electronic. So I'm sure some pressure on the Apple people behind these events. They've got a whole bunch of Wi-Fi and audio things to stress test because Apple will want to make sure that this big event, one of the biggest Apple hardware events for some time, goes without a hitch. Now, right after that Apple event concludes, I'll be getting together with David Woodbridge, who is a podcaster well-known for his Apple podcasts. Also, Alison Hartley, Apple geek and host, co-host of the Tech Doctor blog and podcast. And of course, Heidi Mosen will be here as well, because what often goes out during these Apple events is a whole series of slides that aren't audio described. So you get a lot of information about other things that aren't talked about on stage that whiz by in these slides. And so Heidi is on the lookout for them. She takes a screen capture of them. Uh, She sifts through the data and gives us important news that we can use as part of this special Blindside podcast. And also, she will be describing the hardware in detail, things that we as voiceover users may want to know. So you will definitely want to be on the lookout for the Blindside podcast, episode 53, as I say, in less than 48 hours from when we publish. But for now, we get back into the nitty-gritty of this extraordinary election campaign in New Zealand. It's time to hear from this week's featured guest on The Blindside. Telephone dictation, voting and now early voting are all open for New Zealand's general election. And to help you with your decision, we've been featuring interviews with many of the disability spokespeople. And as we conclude this series, we're joined once again by Nikki Wagner, who is the National Spokesperson on Disability Issues. And of course, she has been the incumbent minister for this parliamentary term. So it's really great to have you here, Minister. Thanks for giving us some time. 
My pleasure, Jonathan. All right, let's just get the elephant in the room out of the way, if we could, at the beginning, because when I mentioned on last week's podcast that we'd be talking to you today, and I said to people, if you've got any questions for the minister, let us have them. Actually, a number of listeners got in touch, and they mentioned the tweets, the tweet that you sent where you tweeted from a meeting and said you'd rather be out on the harbour, and there was a bit of a social media storm at the time. Was that an error of judgment, or did people just misunderstand what you were driving at with that tweet? It was a very silly tweet. I was having a very good day in Auckland uh, meeting with disability issues, uh, several different people, including the Equal Opportunities Commissioner, Jackie Blue, and the Halberg Trust, and also uh, the local um, Chamber of Commerce in terms of employment for disabled people. So it was a very good day, very silly tweet. And um, one thing about it, they do know who the minister is now. (laughs) You think they didn't before? (laughs) No, I think some of them didn't. It certainly um, uh, gave me a bit of profile even so for a short term. Is it a storm in a teacup? Or, or do you think that if National is re-elected to government and the Prime Minister might think, well, there's a bit of damage done here? I mean, how, how serious is it long term? Um, I hope that people know me well enough to know that I would never do anything uh, that was negative for the disability community. I've really enjoyed my time as the Minister and I've worked pretty hard and I think I've achieved quite a lot. So I'm hopeful that they can overlook a silly tweet. Actually, one of the things I was a bit sad about was that for the last three years, I've tweeted regularly about good news stories out of the disability community, about people who are doing fantastic stuff, the Paralympians, all those people, and nobody was very interested. Well, there are bigger fish to fry, so I'd like to give you a chance and we'll expand on some of the things I'm sure you'll bring up. But let's have a bit of an elevator pitch from you. National has been leading the government for nine years now. How are New Zealanders with disabilities better off after those nine years? And why will they be better off if they re-elect you for another three? Well, I think there's three things. Um, First of all, of course, we've updated the disability strategy, which really underpins all the work that's been done in disability government agencies and across non-government organisations as well. Not only have we updated that, but we've also put an action plan beside that and we're developing a monitoring framework. So the first disability strategy was a good strategy, but it had no teeth. This one has an action plan beside it and a monitoring uh, framework, which will mean we can say, well, if we haven't made progress, why haven't we made progress? So that's the first thing. The second thing is that enabling good lives, which I think is the transformation of disability support services that will make a huge difference uh, for the disability community. We've been driving that from the very beginning. Tariana Turia was the original minister who started talking about enabling good lives, and we've carried that work on. Um, We've had several Uh, demonstrations, one in the North Island, one in the South Island. We've also had projects around individualised funding and supported living that are all coming into this new idea of what enabling good lives could be. And next year, uh, middle of next year, we'll roll out the first uh, sector, which will be around the Palmerston North area, that everybody will be involved with that kind of framework. And it's all about giving disabled people more choice, more control and more opportunities in their lives. You succeeded Dame Tariana Turia in the role and she saw a strong correlation between the struggles that Māori have in achieving tēnoranga tiratanga and the struggles that disabled people have for their self-determination. Have you brought a different approach or would you broadly agree that there is a similarity between the struggles of Māori and the disability community? 
And I also think there's similar struggles with often migrant communities too in different ethnicities. And some people could say there's a gender struggle as well. Um, I, I think it's all about trying to give people a hand up, trying to give them that more choice, that more control and those more opportunities. And regardless of what it is that's um, perhaps limiting people's lives, we need to change it. Dame Tariata made a clear distinction between disabled people's organisations, DPOs, and the organisations that provide services to disabled people, which is absolutely the right call when you're adhering to the principles of uh, self-determination outlined in the UN Convention. Some provider agencies who are actually quite wealthy and have the means to push back do appear to be doing that. Do you think that provider agencies, which don't have a democratic means of determining the collective views of those they exist to serve, have any kind of role to play in the formulation of public policy? And how would you distinguish the advice you take from a provider organisation versus a DPO? Well, what we're looking at is a co-design process. And when you look at a co-design process, you look at you put the disabled person in the centre of that design process and then you look at what kind of supports would they need to have to give them that choice and control. And there will be some uh, organisations that provide some of those services. There will be family that's involved. There will be the disabled people themselves. The DPOs, of course, have a very strong voice in that area. But actually, it's all about making sure that that disabled person has the most opportunities. So everybody, I think, has got some um, a place to play in this role. But yes, is it also not a case of making sure that it's very clear that disabled people are in the best position to determine what is best for them? The disabled people are at the centre of the discussion. They need to be at the centre of the discussion. And when you're doing a co-design process, it is from their point of view that you should be looking. I think that's the problem that we've had in the past is that um, governments, organisations, people have said, I think we should do this for disabled people. And yes, I'm sure it does suit some disabled people, but actually they all need to be able to have some choice about how they want to live their lives. And so just providing services um, as a universal service is not going to cut the mustard going forward. So you have a kind of a radar, you're on the alert for the idea that a service provider may not be appropriately consulting. I mean, I guess if this were a business situation, you'd be talking about market research, wouldn't you? What does this market actually want? And there are a lot of provider agencies that don't do that. There's, There's a lot of paternalism still around. Yeah. Well, the ultimate thing about enabling good lives is that the disabled person will take the choice. And if the provider is not providing what they need, they won't select them. With enabling good lives, does that essentially mean that each person with a disability is allocated, who's part of the program, is allocated a, a finite allocation of funding and they have full control over how is that how that is spent or what, how, how the nuts and bolts of it work? Yeah. That's part of the co-design process at the moment. We've done it before in our demonstrations and some people are really good at managing their own finances. So basically we, we know how much money we're spending on each individual. We can put that into a bucket and some people can look after that very well themselves. Um, they want to employ their own people. They want to be able to make choices with their money and they do a great job. And that seems to work extremely well for those people. Sometimes it's a matter of the family 
family are managing it for their, those people as well and sometimes that works very well but we need to have a series of ways to do that because not all disabled people are going to be able to manage their money themselves. We need to be able to provide a service to support them to manage their money. So not only do we give them the opportunity to make those choices but we also need to give them different levels of support so that they can make sure that they get what they want. Yes, and even for those whose disability doesn't prevent them from managing their own allocation, it's about informed consumption, isn't it? Sometimes you don't know what you don't know. And you might not want to uh, manage it yourself either. Um, the point is there will be a navigation system or tohono, depending on how you call it. But basically, we want people to walk alongside these people, help them make their decisions, make sure that they've got the right information, make sure that they're making decisions from an intelligent place, a place of knowledge. And does Enabling Good Lives deal with the issue of access to funding from a range of sources? For example, somebody might be entitled to funding through health, but they may also be entitled to funding for equipment from Workbridge. And it can be quite difficult to navigate the various funding options and know where you are best likely to get the outcomes you need. Yeah, that's exactly what Enabling Good Lives does. What it does is it aggregates the amount of money that's being spent and gives people choice of how they spend it. Is that transparent? Does somebody know specifically, okay, we, we think you are worth a funding that equates to X number of dollars? It is transparent. Um, we're still struggling with the actual nuts and bolts of that in the co-design process, but it is transparent. We do already have some people using a similar scheme with individualised funding, and we have some organisations that provide them with the funding, and they can go online and see how much money is being spent and where it's going and make those decisions. So that's the only way. It has to be evidence-based in the long term. Um, but the issue, of course, is that some people require more than others, so it's also needs-based. So as people require less, um, they're going to have to give some of that up as well. You'll be aware of the Access Alliance, which has created a real ethical dilemma for some people because there's a lot of provider input and funding from providers going into this. But I think most people in the community agree with the broad objectives they're after. Are you signing on, is National signing on to the concept of disability-specific legislation in your next term? I absolutely support the philosophy behind it and access, but I'm still not convinced that legislation is necessarily the right answer because it's very easy to write legislation, but unless that legislation is actually implemented, it doesn't do anything. So for me, um, I'm working very hard at the grassroots level to try and get that change made because people want to make the change and because it's part of the way we do business here. For example, in terms of accessibility, Every single government building has to be physically accessible, goes through the process of barrier-free. Um, all the um, websites are supposed to be accessible as well. So we've got quite strong statements, and it's under the disability strategy as well, to make sure that that happens. The same thing with local government. Um, the issue that's more difficult is in terms of private enterprise and uh, private business, what they make their decisions. And so we're trying to find ways that will support them to make good decisions. For example, we're working with consenting organisations to say, if you go through a barrier-free um, process when you design your building, we'll fast-track your consent. So I'm looking for very practical ways to implement the outcomes, and I'm just not convinced that legislation will do that. 
every time, and I can only talk about this from my perspective as a blind guy, and I'm sure that if I were, if I were talking to you as a wheelchair user, I'd have a different set of examples, but every time I get on a bus and I have to deal with the stops not being announced just as a matter of course, like they are in many other countries we like to compare ourselves with. And when I think of how little Braille is available, even from departments like work and income, when this government just passed a law that actually removed an accessibility requirement from small passenger transport vehicles, we're a bit of a backwater, aren't we? Surely we've got to do something in legislation to fix this. Well, I don't know. I I don't have that much faith in legislation. I think it actually has to be implemented. One of the things that I think we need to work pretty hard at, and I have met um, with the Apple people. They're doing a lot of work in terms of uh, cell phones and that that can help um, with several different disabilities. In fact, I now have a, a cell phone that reads to me. I don't have to, I don't have to look at it anymore. Yeah. Mind you, it does start at some, some strange times and I can't stop it, so I, I have to learn a little bit more about it. Um, but what, I think one of the other things we need to look at is how can we use technology to support disabled people too so that they can be independent, so that they can make those choices and can have more control over their lives. And that technology, the new iPhone is going to be announced two days from now, and the premium version great? of yes, the premium version of that iPhone is going to cost around about two thousand dollars. That is money that most disabled people do not have. So I fully agree with you that the impact of technology on the disabled community is far more significant. You know, for somebody who is not disabled, it allows them to do something with a bit of convenience and more efficiently. For a disabled person, it could be the difference between independence and not, but it's way out of the price reach of most people in our community. But I think like all technologies, interestingly enough, originally texting was designed for deaf people. And of course, it's become universal for everybody. But as prices come down, I think that makes a difference. I know that my iPhone is not $2,000 and yet it will read out to me as well. So I think it's a matter of um, looking at what's available, seeing which apps are available, and the technology is becoming cheaper and cheaper all the time. In fact, I'm thinking in terms of something like enabling good lives. One of the best investments we could do is make sure that everybody has uh, perhaps some kind of smartphone so that they can look at where their money is, they can do that online, and it works for them. Right, and a lot of the funding for that sort of technology now, if it's available at all, it's tied up with some sort of vocational goal. So if you can demonstrate that you need this for uh, your work, you may be able to get the phone, although there are funders who say, well, if you were sighted, if you weren't disabled, you would have to have a phone as a matter of course anyway in this position, so therefore we're not going to fund it. So it is it is complicated. So it's interesting that it you would... It is complicated. Yeah. But Workbridge, of course, has got funding um, to help people, and they do, they... they uh, allocate funding every day and certainly I think it's important to um, make sure that that is available and I have, I hear various things some people say it takes too long, other people say that as soon as Workbridge got hold of um, what they needed they did a really great job so the money is there, we just need to make sure that people know how to access it. And what about the fact that say the majority of blind people are over the age of 65, about 80% are and they are outside the workforce but there are apps, as you say, you mentioned reading money there are also apps that will do things like read your mail to you um, that will tell you the difference between the baked beans and the peaches actually investing some one-off capital in giving people technology like a smartphone could be a significant saving long term in terms of expensive home help for example Are are we thinking big like that 
Well, that's all part of our social investment approach that the National Party is very interested in. Um, what we're seeing is that if you can give people the tools to do things right, you can often make their quality of life a lot better, but also means that they can stay in their own home for longer or they can have um, more independence for longer, and that's really positive. And certainly that's very much part of the Enabling Good Lives uh, principles. But we're not at the point yet, are we, where we can say in three years' time, if National is re-elected, that anybody who can prove a genuine disability-related need for a smartphone will have one, irrespective of income. I don't think we're at that stage yet, but I think we're moving very close to it, and I think it makes very good sense. So why would we want to let the private sector off the hook without legislation, though, Minister? Because there are certain things that, that just aren't. Well, that, because... You know, that, there's no point legislating if you spend all your time, all your energy and all your efforts fighting over stuff and nothing actually changes. So I'm still looking around the world. Um, I've been speaking, speaking to the Canadians and some of them say that it's made a difference. Others say it hasn't made any difference whatsoever. So the point is, I'm very much to do a pragmatic change. I'm working a lot with local government in terms of making sure that everything they do is accessible. Central government is certainly focused on that and working with the uh, social services, um, state services department to make sure that they take disability into all their diversity plans and options. And we're working very hard with them. They've got a group together, particularly to support disabled people into work. So it's just a matter of prioritising your energy. And personally, I would rather see things happening on the ground than spend a lot of time and energy and effort writing rules that nobody takes any notice of. Isn't legislation, well, but I mean, whether they take notice of it or not, isn't that a case well, of the, the nature the of legislation? The trouble with legislation is that you've got to prosecute people if they don't do it. And every time you prosecute somebody, it takes a lot of time and energy and effort. So people seem to think that legislation's magic. As soon as you say you have to do it, everybody does it. But we know perfectly well that that's not the case. So what we want to do is actually get change and I think change on the ground is um, much more practical and sensible and will deliver much more for the disability community than writing legislation that just sits there. But this like is our exact- strategy. Yeah. like our strategy. They said, we had a strategy, we've had a strategy for 15 years. And when we went to update it, they said, oh, yeah, well, OK, we've done some of it. But actually, there's no action plan. There's no monitoring. So there's no teeth. So you can write anything you like. You can talk about anything you like. But actually, you've got to do it. And that's what I'm interested in. But you see, this argument could equally have been made and was made, in fact, way back in the early 20th century when health and safety legislation was a big issue. There are certain things in New Zealand business that you just have to do. It's a cost of doing business, such as health and safety. There's already things that you have to do in terms of accessibility as well. Um, So we've already got... um, Uh, rules around accessibility. We've already got rules around communication. So the point is, it's a tweak more than anything else. Um, So look, we can argue as much as you like about this. If If someone can prove to me that legislation that's been passed has been successful to change the lives of people on the ground, I'm very happy to look at it. But at the moment, I don't see any evidence of that. I look specifically, and I think it is important that we argue about this, because this is going to be, if people are voting on disability issues, this question of accessibility legislation is one of the key things that people are going to be thinking about. And certainly in Abel Good Life is another right. one. I don't think that's right. I think they're concerned about accessibility, 
not accessibility legislation. What they want to do is to be able to get into the buildings. They want to go in the front door. They want to be able to see if um, the lighting is at the right level. They want to make sure that they can distinguish the signs. They want all that stuff to happen. That's what they want. Yes, they do. That's what I support. That's what I want to happen. But But I don't think it's necessarily legislation will do that. So that's what we're arguing about. Not about the principle of it. What we have isn't working now. How we get there. What we have isn't working now. I mean, you look at, for example, you ask for specific examples. I don't know if that's not true. I mean, we've started in Christchurch and we've we've done all the um, uh, accessibility in our centre city. And yes. The buildings are doing really well. The new hotels are being accessible. Um, I have had a couple of complaints about one couple of buildings. We've gone back to them. We've asked them to do their signage differently. We've asked them to make the things work in other ways. They've done that as well. So generally speaking, we've found that people building new buildings, I just say to them, you do not know what your building is going to be used for for the next 20 years or 50 years. But one thing you do know is people have to get into it. So big doors, easy access is the most common sense thing to do. And that's what we're seeing in Christchurch. When I go to a hotel in the United States, I would say 95% of them have Braille on the room doors. And so it's very easy for me to know which is my room number when I'm trying to find it. I have not seen a hotel in New Zealand that does this. And I must admit, I haven't been to Christchurch recently. But you look at the Australian situation, for example, with disability discrimination there. They have legislation which has some binding mandatory powers. They can hold inquiries and the results of those inquiries are binding. Public transport has improved markedly specifically because of that legislation. I took a human rights complaint against MediaWorks who do not audio describe anything on their networks whatsoever. I've also taken a human rights complaint against TV New Zealand because TV New Zealand will not put their audio-described content on demand. So as a blind consumer, I'm being discriminated against by being required to watch TV when it goes out rather than on demand, like most people are doing now, because when you watch it on demand, it's not audio described. I can go on and on about specific examples where these private organizations, well, of course, TVNZ, a state-owned one, which makes it even worse, they are flagrantly in breach of any kind of accessibility principles, and nobody cares, and the Human Rights Commission is, is limp-wristed, and they're overstressed, and nothing happens. You'll be pleased with the new Marrakesh Treaty. Absolutely thrilled with it. But there are 31 signatories on that already, and New Zealand's been dragging the chain on that treaty. Well, not dragging the chain. What we've done is as soon as I got there, I started pushing it through, and it's been through the process, and it's being signed off. So I think that's a really good step forward. It's a great step forward. And and, and there will be legislation. there will be, it's a great step forward, but that yep. will require legislation in the next parliament before we can And I think that's there. very worthwhile and I yep. support that absolutely. I just sense a feeling of despondency out there about why we are so far behind compared with countries we like to compare ourselves with. I don't think we are. We are the people who push the convention. We are leading in so many ways and the work that we're doing in terms of jobs for disabled people, the work that we're doing um, with businesses across the country, the Disability Confident Employers Scheme. And I'm, I'm thinking if you vote for National and we come back, I'm very keen to have a Disability Confident New Zealand Scheme um, because I think what's happening now is that 
people have got a very different point of view to disabled people than they had in the past. Um, they see disabled people as much more mainstream than they have been. Someone like Robert Martin representing us on the international stage um, makes us very proud. And it's not something that would have happened 20 or 30 years ago. Um, we're also seeing enormous change in terms of um, the Paralympics. They're out there making it happen. People want to watch that. They preferred them to the ordinary Olympics. I think there's a real strength and groundswell of support for our disabled community. And I think that's really positive for New Zealand. How do we translate that into job readiness? Because I know that this is a really important part of the disability strategy that the government put together after a very extensive consultation process with the community. Um, do you? Uh, I think that the, I think in terms of employing disabled people is probably the things that will make the most difference to their lives. And so what I've been doing since I began, the first thing I did when I became the minister was I set up a, something called Project 300 in Christchurch because that was back in 2014 and we had a very low unemployment rate in Christchurch and a lot of growth and so we used that to get we were working on 300 people into work but as it turned out it was over 600 people into sustainable work and the whole idea of that was matching employers with employees and what we discovered is actually the employers need their hands held um, it's all very well for us to spend our time working with disabled people and getting them right technology, getting the training, getting their CVs right. But unless we got the employers to open the door, nothing actually happened. Mm. And so we, we started this Disability Confident Employers Scheme and we also put in an employer's a hotline so that they could ask questions. And we started building relationships between the employers and um, work brokers in terms of employees and building that strongly. And so I've visited all the chambers of commerce throughout New Zealand. Um, we've worked extensively with Business New Zealand. A uh, lot of research has been done, and I believe we're beginning to open that door wider uh, for disabled people. I've also done a lot of work um, with the states, the state services and uh, the uh, government employees, and we set up this thing called the LEAD toolkit because we think government should lead in terms of employing disabled people. So the lead toolkit is now in all the different agencies and departments of government. They are to report back. We've given champions in each of those departments to look after um, to make sure that they're disability friendly and that their employment is working in that respect. And we've got um, the head of uh, IRD and also Treasury um, are joint leaders in terms of driving that work. So there's a lot of work that's been done. That lead toolkit has also been turned into uh, a private business um, document as well. So it's a lead toolkit for business. And so we're beginning to get that information out and educating employers about the very strong uh, positives of employing disabled people. How are we tracking that? Do you have a sense of whether participation from disabled people is up or down in the public sector over the last decade or so? Well, we've got to get documentation around that and surveying. So we started by surveying um, the existing ministries and asking them to look at what they felt they had in, in terms of disability. Now, it's going to take a while to get an accurate survey because um, when you first start doing this, some people perhaps um, don't want to talk about their disability or they think it might be disadvantaged to them. So we have to come up with a, a original break-even. Well, well, I suppose it's the 
what we've got to start off with, and then we can start building on that. So we've started with the surveys, we've given those surveys to all the different um, ministries, and we'll work our way through that project. But also they have to report back on this as part of their diversity uh, strategy too. So I think that reporting is really important, but this will take some time. One of the other things that I think is particularly important is we're trying to work with interns because what we do know is that if you can get people into a department or into an organisation or into a business and they 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 move from being an amorphous person to Fred or Mary or Jack, um, then they have a much more chance of ending up with a job there. Can I ask about services that differ depending on whether somebody is disabled as a result of an accident or whether they're congenitally or medically disabled? This seems to be quite a disparity and it's a really big public policy issue to tackle. Are you of a mind to have a look at that and try and deal with the disparities that still exist after all these years after the Woodhouse Commission? Um, There's no disparity in terms of how we expect employers to relate to disabled people. Um, Everybody, what we're looking for is a match and it's a match between the interests, the skills of the disabled person and the employer. So whether they come through ACC or whether they come through any other way um, doesn't affect how we see this process happening. Mm. And there's certainly a perception, at least, whether it's accurate or not, it will be interesting to get your views on that, but there's a perception that the, the amount of, of support and funding to which someone is entitled is much better if you were disabled as a result of an accident. One of the things that we have learned about people who are disabled as a result for an accident is that if we can keep them connected with their employers that they had in the past, about 60% of them will take them back, even if it's in a different role. So the understanding about that is that you might have Jack and he might have been a big strapping guy and he worked in your warehouse um, and then he fell off something and broke his back and he's now in a wheelchair. But if we keep in contact with their employers beforehand, um, they'll say, oh, we know Jack. Yeah, yeah, he knows all our our, our customers. Oh, no, I think he could work in the... um, I don't know, the books department or the accounts department or something like that. So what we do know is that when people have knowledge of um, individuals, regardless of whether they're uh, disabled or not, they're much more likely to stay in the system. And so I think the key issue it tells us then is getting disabled people into internships, into organisations, getting them to meet prospective employers. Another thing we've learned is that we're better to introduce a disabled person who wants a job to a company before the job comes up because people often employers are a bit nervous about um, taking somebody for a job interview because they don't feel as if they want to turn down a disabled person. Um, but if they get to know the person beforehand and then the job comes up, they're very happy to give them the job. So, you know, we're just trying to find ways to introduce disabled people into the workforce um, so that they've got the best possible chance of getting a, a part-time or a full-time job. One of the things I've always respected about Bill English in his long service to New Zealand through politics is that he is a bit of a public policy geek and he really thinks about the policy tools that are available and has, I think, quite a coherent vision for where he is going. Um, And I have to... 
Yeah. Go on. Sorry, I just have to say he's been particularly interested in enabling good lives, and we've only got um, this process full as far as it's gone simply because he's championed it himself. And he constantly talks to me about it and talks to the team that are working on it, and he's constantly asking us to go faster. Yes, yeah, so Bill English is a bit of a fan of, of targeting, and a long time ago he and I would talk about this stuff too. In the last 30 years or so, there's been a change to the way that New Zealanders think about benefits. So benefits are now usually seen as a temporary means of support until someone can find work. And some disabled people, of course, receive a benefit that assumes that they will never work. I wonder what you think of a model that says that actually, even if you are working, there are ongoing costs of disability that don't change. So if they're not compensated for, even when you are in employment, your discretionary income is being depleted for the privilege of having a disability. Do do you think there's a place for a non-means-tested cost of disability allowance that everybody is entitled to? Well, I suppose it depends on how you look at that because if we're saying that nearly a quarter of New Zealanders have some kind of disability, it would be quite a complicated process, wouldn't it? Because if you can't hear very well, well, we I suppose we do support hearing aids and things like that. Um, if you are blind, we've got the Marrakesh Treaty, we're doing work in that area. I, I don't know how that would work out. Um, I think... Generally speaking, in New Zealand, um, we feel that uh, benefits are for people who need them and they are absolutely there for people as long as they need them. Um, But if they can go to work and if they can live a pretty ordinary life, um, maybe that money could be spent on somebody else. Looking at the position that you hold, your portfolio in disability issues, it is a position outside Cabinet, and I wonder if that has an impact on your ability to influence outcomes. Should we be concerned? Should we be advocating for your accession to Cabinet, perhaps? Mm-hmm. Uh, look, I don't think it really matters. Um, I've found that uh, I work with Minister Tolly, of course, because um, disability issues comes under um, social welfare and social um, development. Um, and so I work very closely with her. And of course, even if you don't go to cabinet meetings, um, you have all the cabinet committees. So all the decisions, the vast majority of decisions are made in cabinet committees. And if you want to go and discuss it with cabinet, you just go and do that. I certainly haven't been short of any money. Um, I'm just looking at our policy thing today and we're saying that um, National spends uh, $4.5 billion um, investing, supporting disabled people every year. So there is a significant amount of money, probably a lot more than some of the other um, portfolios that are in Cabinet. So I, I don't think it's that relevant. I think it's a matter of delivering what we can for the disability community. And after all, if you're championed by the Prime Minister, you've probably got the best chance ever. And special education is a complicated area, isn't it? Because for some people in the community, it is about one-off capital modifications, say, to the built environment. For others, like blind people, you need to invest ongoing in, in their education because they're using Braille, which is a means of literacy that the average teacher isn't trained to teach. There was an item on Morning Report about a week ago which indicated that in certain parts of New Zealand, access to special education for very young children was in dire straits. Do you accept that premise that that piece put forward? I didn't see that myself, but I work very closely with Minister Kay, and there's been a lot of work done around um, 
education support. We don't use the term special education anymore because people, we want about learning support because we want to make sure that people have the best possible chance going forward. Um, It's interesting. Uh, We've worked a lot with families and trying to make sure that we put the money in the right place. Um, And I think certainly there's much keener to mainstream. One of the things that's happened in Christchurch is since we've had so much damage to our schools, we've actually had a lot more choice about how people, um, their disabled kids get their education. We do have um, specialist schools, of course, but we also have more satellite schools and we seem to see that move seems to work very well that um, Families often want their kids to be involved in the mainstream school, the local school that they've got near them, but they quite like the idea of a bit of a satellite so that they do have an area of their own um, with specialist support as well. So it's sort of a a bit like a halfway house, and it seems to have been very popular in Christchurch as we rebuild our, our support network. Yes, it's probably happenstance, but I think it's fortuitous that you have an overlapping portfolio uh, mix there because we have spoken on this podcast to people in Christchurch who are blind and have other disabilities who've been terribly frightened and adversely affected by the quakes in the sense that it's much more difficult to get around when you can't see what you're doing, when you don't know what state the pavement Mm -hmm. is in and the buildings and things. So there is this delicate balance to be struck, isn't there, between respecting the independence of disabled people, but knowing where to find them and how to provide assistance to them a natural disaster when we're all vulnerable, but I think disabled people particularly so. And I think that's been one of the things that we've learned from the earthquakes is that we need to be very aware of um, the needs of people in our community so that when something does happen, and let's face it, um, disasters happen, seem to happen very regularly. We've had fires lately in Christchurch Mm. as well. So we do need to know where our community is and we actually all need to be better prepared up and down the country in terms of what nature can throw at us. And that's Disability Issues Minister Nikki Wagner wrapping up our series on the New Zealand general election. I appreciate that we have tried the patience of some of our international listeners to the podcast, although some have told me that they find it interesting, even if they've skimmed through these podcasts, to find out what is happening in another country. But this was a public service that I really wanted the blind side to do because we have been able to give disability issues in New Zealand a kind of scrutiny that has never happened before a general election. I hope that you, if you are in New Zealand, are enrolled. It's not too late to get enrolled to cast a vote if you are not. Make your vote count. The Electoral Commission have made it easy. If you're a blind person, you can vote by telephone. Go back a couple of podcasts. You will hear the interview with Melissa Thorpe from the Electoral Commission that describes that. And you can also go to elections.org.nz for further information. You can call the number as well on... 0800 028 028. That number again is 0800 028 028. You can register to vote or actually if you are registered now and you've made up your mind, you don't need any more information, you can cast your vote now up until Election Day inclusive. We'll be back with lots of fun technology stuff in a couple of days. Thanks for listening to The Blind Side, a production of Mosin Consulting. On the web at mosin.org.